um, starting with 1 Samuel 4, 1 to 6. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The Philistines capture the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Uh, verse 10 to 11. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 1 Samuel 5, 10-12. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. 1 Samuel 6, 27 to 2, 7 verse 2. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. That was really good reading. There's a lot of hard names in that. Really good reading. Jessica just read a section from 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. If you have your Bible open, I would encourage you to have it open in that part of your Bible. I will be doing more of an overview of those chapters than going diving deep into those chapters. Um, and it's always interesting when you hear um, 
a reading from Scripture read because it's, you know, I always am trying to open, God, what, what kind of impact does it happen to me when I hear those words? And I just, the, the death in the chapter stands out to me. Um, hearing the deaths of the people in the, that were serving in the army. I think about that we had our one-year anniversary of the war of Ukraine this past year, this past week. And even in the Mediterranean, just migrants, I think I saw a number around 58 died in an accident that happened. So I think I've just, death has its impact. I like to acknowledge that a little bit. As we begin uh, this time just in God's Word and First Samuel 4, Please join me in praying and asking God to speak to us. Lord, you are the God of all time, the God of all place, the God with a defined good, loving purpose for your world that you've created and a good and loving purpose purpose for each person here. Lord, I pray you would lead us and meet us in your word this morning. I pray you would use the words on the page by your spirit to lift us up and to see what you have us to see, to hear what you have us to hear. I pray, Lord, that this season will be a time of transformation, of repentance, of renewal, of remembering. And that, Lord, you help each of us where we are this morning, because some of us feel like We might be very tired from the week, and the last thing we need is for a lot of words and information. And for some of us, you might be hungry and thirsty, and I pray you would make us hungry and thirsty for you, Lord. A deep desire to hear you speak this morning. Please guide our time. Please lead our time to be exactly what you would have it be this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you. I've already mentioned that we started the season of Lent um, this past week. And what I said in our Ash Wednesday service that we had this past Wednesday is that, especially on a day like Ash Wednesday, which is the kickoff day for this, what it really is trying to, to create is a way for each of us to say that I am not enough, but God is. It's a season from dust to joy of like trying to get our hearts right to God, with God and what I have here is the devotion that uh, Wendy mentioned earlier in our service, and I thought it put it so well. Um, so if you wanted to actually see the words I'm about to read to you, you can find it. This is on the meditation for Ash Wednesday. It says this, during the season of Lent that leads up to Easter, I feel we must put to death the idea that we are actually the ones in control. We need to put to death a self-reliance that wrongly suggests that we might be able to fix the world rather than relying on God, the only one who is able to make all things right. And one of the illustrations that I, would thought, I thought I would start off with this morning it, about how, what the kind of self-reliance we need or probably do need to consider putting to death is some of the recent um, developments, advancements in technology, but specifically artificial intelligence. I have been fascinated. The, the staff was laughing at me this week. Because I was actually starting to look at some of these things and play with some of the new AI technology that's come out, chat, GPT, and there's a lot of others. You might think it might look like a search engine, but it's actually much more sophisticated. They're building out this programming for a technology to already anticipate exactly what we need and to give us exactly what we want. 
So one of the OpenAI things that were released months ago that's been getting a lot of attention is this thing called OpenAI ChatGPT. And so it might open up like a text box, but it's actually responding specifically to your questions. It's so much more sophisticated than like Google search. And so I have a, a couple examples I want to show this morning. So this is like one answer here. Here's like a Bible joke. I said, tell me a Bible joke. Sure, here's a Bible joke for you. Why did the fig tree refuse to give Jesus any fruit? Because it was just a figment of its imagination. I know. Or there's another one here. What did I ask it? I was trying to see here if I could go to the next one. Um, all right. Well, the, if we, the, uh, oh, yeah. I asked it, how do you listen well? And it gave me seven points for how to listen well. Effective listening just through hearing and giving someone's attention. But the thing I was specifically fascinated about this week was not just the text prompts, because I've seen this before, but that they have AI that actually can generate images on command. And have you heard about this or seen anything about this? So you give it a prompt, and it creates an image based upon what you ask it to create. So I went into a similar prompt like you just saw, and I said, can you show me a child eating pizza? Digital art. And this is what it shows. Just 30 seconds, and boom, here's a picture of a child eating pizza. Do I know how it got that? I don't know how it got there. <laughs> but it's using that intelligence to basically, boom, this is exactly what you want to see. I'm anticipating what you want to see. I asked it to do another thing. I asked it to show me a depiction, an impressionist depiction of the river valley in North Edmonton. And then this is what it shows couple different pictures. Just by a simple text command, it gave me, this is what it shows me and gives me. What does it not know? Is there anything it doesn't know? <laughs> so, the last one I want to show you is this. I asked it to show me the Lord's Supper, which we're celebrating this morning. A table for everyone. And then you see these images and you see, wow, this piece of technology, it's not a person. It's grasping at something. It seems really powerful. And I don't know if you're freaked out by that, because I was very freaked out by that when I first saw it. If you're not, maybe you're living in a world, I, I, I'm catching up a little bit here. But technology, whether it's what you just saw through artificial intelligence or the things that we have in our phones, all of us carrying many phones that do, are really actually sophisticated computers, they are telling a story they're telling a story about humans that are masterfully taking control of their circumstances. They're taking control of their problems, and they're, assisting, they're insisting on, on filling their desires and needs immediately by their own means. So if I want something, I want to know something or know how to do something, all I have to do is apply my, my own means through it, whether it's something like AI or some other way, and I get exactly what I want. I don't even have to wait for it. Technology can bring a powerful change in the world, but we must also use the wisdom gained from its development. I think of all the sci-fi shows I've seen in my life where like, oh, this is this amazing technology, and it all goes bad. If we don't use it wisely, it will be dangerous and destructive. Technology tempts us with the lie. Do I really need God? Do I really need God to fulfill my desires, or can I just do it myself? 
Technology tempts us with that lie. It's a gift, but it's meant to be used in relationship with God. And yet if we attempt to use God's gifts apart from him, we bring upon terrible consequences. So back to 1 Samuel 4. That's already an illustration of what we see in these three chapters. That if we try to use God's gift, the the advancements in technology, and even try to use God's power on our own, it's not only going to harm us, but it's going to harm all the people around us. The story that 1 Samuel is trying to tell us is a story about people attempting to use God's power without him. And if you look at the second verse of chapter 7, you'll see where this ends. It was already read for us. But 1 Samuel 7, 2 says this at the very end. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So if you think about what happens in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, however long we go there to whatever detail we go, the result is people turning back to God. People getting into right relationship with God. The problem that you see with Israel, and we talked about this a month ago about what's happening with the people of God in this story, is they are living way away from God. We looked at the worship happening in Shiloh. It was a mess. It was a sham. And so here, they try to do something that was modeling what happened in their history, but they do it with a complete disrespect of God. And it's built on the idea, we can do this, so why not? Not whether we should. And so I want to look at three ways in these three chapters that God is helping his people turn back to him. If the result in 7-2 is that they're going to turn back to him, what are three ways God helps them do that? God lets them fail, God shows his power, and God returns. God lets them fail, God shows his power, and God lets them return. So, looking at the first part of it, chapter 4, how does God let Israel, that's the people of God, fail? And why does he let them fail? Well, at the very beginning in chapter 4, they're going to battle. You don't even know why they're going to battle. My mind, my, 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 my reading mind says, is this a battle they should be fighting? God didn't tell them to go to battle, so why are they fighting? I think of all the reasons you might go to war or to battle, and the re- reality is is sometimes people go to battle because they like to get the perks at the end. You get to, have, you get to come home with really good things. You know, like it, it's actually, I, I could see a motivation of greed for why they're battling, but you don't know. And they go out really overconfident, think, we got this. We've won lots of battles before. They meet this people, the Philistines, and think, we can beat these guys. We beat them before. And guess what? They lose. Thousands of people die. So they come back and say, that was weird. Why did that happen? Why did we lose that time? And just as they ask the question, they immediately rush to what they think the answer is. We forgot the Ark of the Covenant. They immediately go to this place of thinking, why did we lose? Well, all of our ancestors used to have the Ark of the Covenant with them. I'll explain what the Ark of the Covenant is if you don't know what that is. So that's all we need. That's what they ask. 1 Samuel 4.3, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today in the Philistines? And so, 1 Samuel 4.3, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, which is where all that bad worship was happening, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Instead of waiting, seeking the Lord, and actually being in a place of asking, God, why did that happen? They immediately come up with what they think is their answer. They rush to grab the ark. They get it from Shiloh. It's brought up by Phineas. 
and his brother, all these priests that are doing these horrible things in terms of the time of worship, and they're ready to go to fight. Now, it's important to notice, I want to explain what the Ark of the Covenant is, because it's so important to understand everything that's happening in these few chapters. You know, Samuel's even completely absent in these chapters. We're reading 1 Samuel. It's not about Samuel. But it's about the Ark of the Covenant and what God's doing through this. So the Ark of the Covenant was always intended to represent, and I have a few pictures that will go up when you hear me talk about this. The Ark of the Covenant was always intended to represent God's presence with his people. It's this sacred, gold, portable box, and it would always sit in the center of Israel's holy place of worship. The ark was intended to represent power and presence, and even in the wilderness, when the people were in the desert, they would bring the ark of the covenant with them. They would carry this large gold box, fully gold. Imagine how heavy that box is, about three and three quarters of feet long and two and one quarter feet wide, and they would carry it into battle, and then God would give them victory. Or if you can think about when we looked at Joshua, which was almost about a year and a half ago, just that was, they went into the River Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant. Through the Ark of the Covenant, God reigned, he ruled, he spoke, he forgave people, and it was a sign of God leading his people. And yet when I look at this battle, immediately what's happening at the beginning of chapter four, I think who's leading who here? The people have gone ahead of God. And so it's not going to be the outcome they want. You can see that in verse 10 through 11. Verse 10 through 11. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A couple chapters ago, God predicted that this would happen. The people were going the wrong way. And it's so significant. Think about this is one of those treasured items for a whole people, and it's gone. It was just taken by another, another, another people group. And then the priests who were guarding it were died, died too, which was predicted. The rest of chapter 4, which I won't talk about too much, was how the news gets around the whole, whole nation. And the two priests who died, Hophni and Phinehas, their dad is in Shiloh, Eli, He's in a rocking chair, and after he hears the news, he immediately dies also. Now, Phineas's wife was pregnant, and she gives birth to a son. And when, when, when names are given in the Bible, it's really significant. So the significance is in the meaning of the name of the son. You can read about it in verse 21. The words will be in the screen. Phineas's wife, she named the boy Ichabod. Ichabod saying... The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of their father-in-law and her husband, she, this is the wife, said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. But to kind of adjust that a little bit, the real news of the day was not that the ark of the God was captured, taking away God's presence and glory. No, God removed his glory and presence from the people. He left. He removed it. He left. And that's why they lost the battle. That's why they lost the ark. So the first theme here is this whole idea of God letting the people fail. They make some big mistakes here. 
You might think in your own life as you're thinking through this message or in worship today, how have I failed and did God gracefully let me fail to learn from that? Think about my kids every time. I actually want to let them fail more than get things right because they'll learn from those missteps. Next theme in our section here is chapter 5 which is what the Philistines do with the ark, which they probably, they have, what's very clear is they have no idea what to do with the ark. They kind of like, yes, we got this big gold box. Where do we put it? And through what they do, God shows his power to these, these people that have no idea any of the history around God, Yahweh, and Israel. They don't know the history. What you learn is that this ark ends up in three different places in chapter 5. Three different places. It's called Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, all these different places. And different things start to happen. Very strange, weird things start to happen in these places. You find out that the people group, the Philistines, were made up of five rulers. So three cities representing those five rulers. And then at each city, the first one, the very beginning of chapter 5, tells us that they bring this gold box. They don't know what to do with it. And so they decide to put it in their temple. They put it in their temple next to the statue of their god, Dagon. So they put it in the temple, and then the next morning, the statue's fallen over. So they, they put the statue back up, and then the next morning after that, the statue's fallen over, and now his head's off, and his hands have fallen off. Like God is demonstrating his power to people who don't know him at all. Then they start to move the Ark of the Covenant to a different place, and then all of a sudden, these very strange things happen. It talks about how people are starting to experience tumors and rats are filling the city. The city is starting to come up in panic just because this one thing that's changed is this Ark of the Covenant is in this city. God is showing his power. The way it's described is the Lord's hand is heavy on these people. It's heavy on these people who are experiencing something. Some scholars even think it's something like a bubonic plague that's happening. Rats bringing in this infection. People are experiencing swelling and tumors. It's hard to know exactly. The ark lasts for seven months. Seven months, the ark stays in this Philistine territory. And then finally, they realize, we got to get rid of this thing. And they do everything they can to get this back to Israel including guilt offerings. They send gold, they send sacrifices, they do everything they can to get rid of this because they fear further consequences. So God lets the people fail. He shows his power, especially to a people, not Israel, the people that don't know the history, that don't know who God is. And then third, God returns his presence and glory to Israel. He returns his presence and glory to Israel. And this is a little bit what you see happening in chapter 6. He returns his presence in Israel. Chapter 6 starts with how Philist the Philistines go about giving that back to Israel. And what's really interesting is that even though the Philistines have learned something, that there's something powerful happening with this presence of God through this God of Yahweh, Israel hasn't learned it. Just because they lost that one fight doesn't mean they've learned it. They go through the transfer, and you can see it in verse 15. The Levites were supposed to specifically handle the Ark of the Covenant. Not all the Levites, but a specific group, a priestly group. And so they, they received the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 15 tells us the Levites took the Ark of the God, the Ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, containing copies of the Ten Commandments, and placed them on a large rock. And on that day, the people of Beth Shemesh, this is the, tr the crossover point, 
They offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices. But here's what happens, is that Israel gets caught not taking this seriously. He's like, oh yeah, we'll take that back, no big deal. They get caught taking it, not taking it seriously, just the same way they took the ark out into the battle. And so they get caught, it says that they looked and gazed upon it. And you kind of wonder, what does that mean? But they gazed upon the Ark of the Covenant. And you even see some references to some people being glad that it's come and some people just not caring. Some people not caring that God has brought this back to Israel. If you're really curious, you go to Numbers 4 and see how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be handled. But it's through the priestly office And because that's not handled and because they're taking it flippantly, because they're being kind of chummy with God coming back in his holy and glory, anybody get like Indiana Jones vibes? It says in verse 19, God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked or gazed into the ark of God. The people mourned. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. So I've already kind of talked through some of the reasons, but I want to focus a little bit on the why. Why did God do this? And it's because they did not treat God's presence, his holy presence, seriously. They took it it lightly. And so the people, they mourn and grieve over the deaths. And then you start to realize that God doesn't bring about consequences and challenges just to other people. He does it for his people, too. We as a church, people who follow Jesus, we should expect that God will challenge us. That God will say, you might think you're on a path, but you're not, you're not bearing as much fruit as you think. He's directing his people. And like I said at the very beginning of chapter 7, it gets all to the point where everyone sees everything that's happened in the battle, in the Philistines, and even when the Ark of the Covenant comes back and all the people turn back to God. 1 Samuel 7, 2. So when you're in the Old Testament, I find it's very helpful to ask the question regularly to yourself, how does this help me see Jesus? If this whole story is bent around me seeing Jesus and understanding more about what it means when Christ comes, what he accomplishes, you wonder what 1 Samuel is helping you do and and how how does this passage and how does Jesus help me turn to God? Jesus came to reveal God's heart for the world. And at the present moment, I think we need that. That there's a difference between what we experience in the life of, his, of Jesus' life. And not only this, but we see our fundamental need for God. And you see, all, all the, whether it's the people of Israel or whether, whether it's the Philistines, they are not treating God as someone they need. They would sooner go about it their own way. And just like the ark is a sign of God's presence, his power, his holiness, Jesus is the sign of God's presence, his power, and his holiness. Just as Jesus' feet touch the earth and he walks among his people, he reminds his people, he leads them, he shows them how how far off track they are from God. And it's not that God isn't approachable, but it's because of our desire for control. It's interfering with that story of God reclaiming us to life and to joy because we would sooner hold on to technology, to control, to our own means to give our own desires and, att- and, and basically to fill our hearts with what we want. 
And so just like there's three ways that God shows grace to the people, Jesus shows three ways. They're the same ways. Jesus lets us fail. Jesus lets you fail so that you can learn how much you need him. Jesus lets you fail. I think of this image of Jesus walking on water. He meets the disciples, and he calls Peter out to him. And it's in Matthew 14. He calls Peter out to him, and at first, Peter keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. At first, Peter keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he's doing it. He's walking on water. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he falls. He doubts for a moment. He looks at the surroundings. Jesus knew that Peter would fall. He, would, he knew that Jesus, Peter would fall. He, he, he doesn't think that any of us won't struggle in our faith. But it's these moments, even this moment of Peter falling and Jesus being able to catch him, that gets this right of Peter's need of Jesus. And that also that he must keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. One of the really helpful commentators talking about this section in 1 Samuel for me is from a scholar named Dale Ralph Davis. And he talks about how Israel's trying to twist God's arm, like trying to, to actually put this like pressure moment on God. Show up! We want you to show up a certain way here. And this is a quote from him that applies to Christians as well. When we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. Think about how you might, be, might have been tempted to use God in your life. If you've walked with Jesus, if you have a relationship with the Lord, just think about how far back that's gone for you. Have there been times you've, been tried, you've tried to manipulate God into doing certain things, whether or not it was in his will? And think about the control happening in your heart. Our songs, our prayers should never shift from thou art worthy to thou art useful. There are times when we relate to God and since you're so useful, God, you can give me what I want or you can make this really hard, complex thing in life go away as opposed to God being worthy of all your heart of all your mind, of all your affection, to actually saying, I am intended to be the center of your life. So beware, I I just want to caution, beware if prayer starts to look like this for you. You start to do prayer in such a way to make it useful, to try to get God to do certain things, because it's not transactional. It's not intended to function that way. We ultimately want what God wants for us, for him to receive the glory and the credit. And even just by byproduct of being close to God, his good and love and mercy does ascend upon you into the world around you. But prayer is not meant to be a manipulation of what God intends to do in the world. Be careful that even things like the way you relate to church show up this way, that you're trying to control the story of your life, trying to say, if I do these certain things, God will bless me. If I do certain things, he's going to make it easier for me, or he's going to remove the challenge from you. No, in fact, it's actually probably more likely that if you commit to meet the challenge in your life with Jesus, it's going to stay hard. But God will give you the strength to endure Fruit will come from that. Healing can come from that. But that doesn't mean it doesn't stay hard. Be careful. You use your finances this way. If I do my finances, if I use them a certain way, then I'm going to check my box and God will bless me. That's not how it works. 
Make sure your songs never shift from thou art worthy to thou art useful. Not only does Jesus let us fail, but he also shows us what God's power looks like up close. If you look at all the different stories in the Gospels of Jesus, notice how the demons respond to who Jesus is. They all know who he is. They all know who Jesus is. They know his name. They know who he is. He is God eternal. And they are submissive to him. They, they have no authority over Jesus. They respond and have to do everything that Jesus says. That's God's power at work. I think about the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the middle of this pagan temple for Dagon. And God is the God of Yahweh of all time, of all purpose. He's the God Almighty. He is completely in control in that moment. There's a moment when Jesus meets uh, Legion. He's filled with tons of demons, and he casts them out into a, a bunch of pigs. And the people that are watching this, this is more about the people, they watch what happened, they hear the story, and they, they plead to Jesus, can you go somewhere else? Can you go somewhere else? I can't take this power. And the way I see that a little bit is, are you ready to meet Jesus when his power shows up? When he shows up, how powerful. I think of these moments in my life when I have just felt like I've had an encounter with the Lord through his word, through being with his people in worship. And I think, wow, Jesus is meeting me exactly where I am. I've been there when he's meeting other people too, and I've not experienced it the same way. And in those moments, it's the real power of God showing up in that moment. And am I ready to meet that? Or does it scare me away? Does that cause me to flee? Jesus lets us fail so we can see how much we need God. Jesus shows his power and what it looks like up close. Just read the Gospels. You see that power at work. Hear the testimonies among you. That's how God's power shows up. And then Jesus also brings us into God's holy presence. Jesus brings us into God's holy presence. To be in the presence of God is not an experience of tolerance. It's about holiness and pure, perfect love. We should still honor God's presence even today, how we worship, how we celebrate communion. We should honor God's presence because he's with us. We should respect his holiness because it's how we rightly relate to who God is. But we don't approach the table or we don't approach God from a place of fear because Jesus has brought us into his presence. You read that the veil was torn, what separated the holiest of holies from the rest of his people was torn, that Jesus accomplished that. So like I've already said, God will still challenge the sin and evil in your life, in my life. He's going to still challenge it, just like he does the rest of the world. But what is different is we are not judged based upon what we have done. We're judged based upon Christ's sacrifice. We're not judged based upon how much we owe or how much we can do. We're judged based upon that debt that Christ paid. Jesus ensures you, if you believe that he died for you and loves you and has risen the grave for you, that you have access to God's presence, to his holiness. And even as you come close to it, just proclaiming his name, I'll tell you that nothing will ever take that away from you. No power is far greater than your own personal woundedness 
nor the shame you've experienced in your life, nor any other evil, nor any other little g-god in the world. No power is greater than the God of the story that we read in these scriptures. That's at work reconciling everyone back to God. As I'm going to move towards close, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and just prepare us to celebrate this table together because it's an expression of the gospel together in community. And I want to go back to that piece about AI. And I don't know if that was familiar with you or not. But what that's intended to do is to illustrate that we are rushing for answers sometimes in life rather than sitting with the questions. And sometimes we come up with ideas that don't require God at all. The mentality which you meet every day is, I want it now. Never mind whether it's good. Never mind whether it produces love. Never mind whether it causes harm. And that's the heartbeat of being a consumer. Faith is not a consume, consummation act. It's an image-bearing act. Image-bearing, whereas we completely dedicate ourselves to bearing the image of Jesus that's restored in him. I have one last quote. It's from an expert on technology and faith. If you haven't read him and you're interested in the subject, please read him. But it's by a guy named Andy Crouch. He says this, because technology is devoted primarily to making our lives easier, it discourages us from discipline, especially the ones that involve disentangling ourselves from technology itself. We have to disentangle ourselves from a desire to control. Lent is a time where sometimes maybe many people in our church will fast from social media or fast from phone use or from certain ways. you, You say no to something not because there's not a potential for good for it, but because you're ultimately wanting to get closer to the ultimate good which gives you the wisdom for how to handle all the options you have in your life. AI, artificial intelligence, if you notice this, is not a space where you're going to hear, I don't know, or or, no, you can't have that. It's not a space where you're going to hear, I don't know, or no, you can't have that. But God in his love does say those things. He does say no. He does say, no, I won't give this to you. And God in his love also leads us back to returning to his presence. Even though it's a place completely different than our own story, he wants to make us part of his story and bring us close. So I'd like to close praying as we prepare for the table, but also just prepare, you know, our hearts for confession, repentance, but also to receive God's grace, receive his mercy, which is what this table is ultimately about. So please join me in praying. And what I'll ask and I'll give you is I'm just going to give you just a little bit here, Lord, for, for you to just ask God, Lord, what is getting in the way of me being close with you? How have you let me fail that I might know that I need you? How do you want to show your power in my midst? And how do you want me to turn back to you? Lord, we're all in very different places in this story of coming back to you, but I pray you would use this time of worship together with our church, Lord, 
to confess things in the way, Lord, to commit to paths of life. And Lord, as we do it, we don't do it on our own means, but by your grace and your goodness, you love each person here. And you desire for them to be provided for, to be loved, that this is a response towards joy and love and acceptance. And so, Father, I just pray that anyone's feeling a tension of how that shifts and transforms our hearts, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would allow that to descend upon us in your love and mercy. And Lord, when we look at this table too, Lord, I just pray you would help us, Lord, to use this act together as a church to express and receive your provision, to receive your love and grace. Holy Spirit, lead us now in your mercy. Amen.